All right, John's Gospel. Let's begin reading in verse 19. John writing by the Spirit. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray together. Jesus, we recognize your victory today. We celebrate it. We're so grateful, Lord, that you conquered death, hell, and the grave on our behalf. We celebrate your victory this morning. Use these verses for your purposes in our lives as we draw close to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What a privilege it is to be able to celebrate this day together as a family. For those of us that know the Lord, our hearts are full of thankfulness. Our hearts are full of love. And they are full of joy. We serve an awesome God. We serve a powerful God. And he's conquered death. He's conquered hell. He's conquered the grave. Death could not hold him. But what are the implications of his victory? What does it mean for the Christian? Maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord and you're just, someone invited you to come. You're tolerating that, that invitation. And you're here. We want to welcome you, of course. Uh, but maybe you don't know the Lord here. And you're here just kind of for many possible different reasons. But you might be wondering, what is, what is the big deal about Jesus raised, being raised from the dead? What, what significance does it have? What difference does it make? And it makes all the difference. Because as I've mentioned, it does demonstrate that Jesus has power and authority over death. There are a lot of so-called saviors in this world. They're not all the same. Just because you claim to be a savior, just because you claim to be a religious leader that has truth doesn't mean that you're the real thing. All through the scriptures, there were people that were imposters that claimed to be somebody, but were proven to be false. God has laid out very specific qualifications for the Messiah. And if Jesus didn't meet those qualifications, that, no, that nobody can. He's the only one that met all those prophetic scriptures, all the qualifications of them. 
So these religious leaders, they're still in their grave, which means ultimately they have nothing to say to us regarding the answer to a very real enemy of ours, and that real enemy is the enemy of death. The death rate is still one per person, I'm pretty sure. And we still have that enemy, and as Christians, we don't have that enemy like others have that enemy because God has taken the sting out of death for us. There's that old story of the father that is in the car with the son and, and there's a bee and the, the, the son is allergic to, to bee stings. And he reaches over and grabs the bee and it stings him and the son is still upset. And he says, son, don't worry about it. Now the, the stinger has, is, is gone. You don't have anything to worry about. And the, and the, and the father took that sting so that the son wouldn't have to. And in a sense, that's the same way for us. God has taken the sting out of death for the Christian. And he refers to it as falling asleep. So death is not the ultimate place that we go. It's just a, a, a butler or um, someone that invites us in or escorts us to another destination. It's like driving in a car and having it break down. You get out of the car you keep walking. And in the old days, you used to have the call box. You know, and I think they still have those, but most people have cell phones. And so you get help, and then you get a new car, right? Well, so it's the same with us. We have, our, our bodies constitute a, a, a soul and a spirit. Our mind, will, and emotions constitute our soul, and we have a spirit. And our spirit someday, as Christians, will move. It will leave this body, and we will get a new body, just like we leave that car that's broken down and get another car, that's better and, 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 and way more uh, ready to, to deliver us where we need to go. So that's a huge difference. So these saviors, these so-called saviors, they have no answer to death. Not just if they can conquer it on our behalf, but explaining why it exists in the first place. The Bible answers that question. The Bible answers why does death occur in the first place. It occurs because of the fall that mankind sinned against God and disobeyed God. And from that moment on, he started dying. He died spiritually immediately, but then the process of physical death started and ultimately culminated in when they physically uh, died after that. And after that, their children received that and so forth, and it got passed down all the way to today. But God has an answer for it. There's a lot of tombs today of religious leaders. But there's one tomb that's empty today in Jerusalem, and that's Jesus, the Lord Jesus' tomb. I was talking with a skeptic a couple weeks ago, and he was saying, there's no evidence for Christianity. And I said, whoa, whoa, easy. Easy now. Let's, let's talk, let's, let's be a little bit more rational than this. He says, there's no way you could know that God is real. There's no way you could know. And I said, oh, okay, so you have all, all knowledge then. Because how could you know I don't know unless you had all knowledge? And if you had all knowledge, you'd have to be God. And you have to believe in yourself. So you have a problem. He didn't find it funny just like you don't. But, um, so, but the point was there's incredible evidence for Christianity. It's not a blind faith. It's faith based on fact and a faith, a faith based on evidence. You'd never know that by turning on the TV or going to a movie or looking in the media where Christians are, are put out there as idiots and against science and against reason and all of that. All of that is not the case at all his resurrection not only demonstrates his power and authority over death but also it demonstrates that the lord jesus was and is the son of god just like he claimed 
He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be divine. And no mere good teacher or prophet claims to be God when they're not. That's a, there's a problem there. If I claim to be God, you'd laugh at me and put me in a padded cell probably, right? You for sure wouldn't listen to my wisdom in terms of what I have to say about life or anything like that. But Jesus claimed to be God. So if he wasn't God in human flesh, then he can't be a good teacher because good teachers don't say that they're God when they're mistaken. You don't believe anything else that they say. So he hasn't left that option, and C.S. Lewis made that uh, very famous. So he revealed that he's the Son of God. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. But we've only scratched the surface. Also, the resurrection demonstrates not only his power over death, and not only is the, the fact that he is the Son of God, but it also guarantees our own future resurrection. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth in chapter 6, verse 14, and he wrote this, And God has both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Also, he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to, your, to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So it means so much to us, the resurrection of Christ. And we enjoy that every day, not just on this day when we celebrate his resurrection. We enjoy that every day. Now, in our text this morning, the Lord Jesus appears to his disciples on the, on the evening of the first resurrection Sunday. And as we saw when we read through the verses, all of the disciples are there except Thomas. And there's some great lessons I want to have us learn from these 10 verses this morning. In watching how he, the Lord Jesus interacts with Thomas, uh, in, in how he teaches Thomas and what he says to him and so forth. And I think it'd be good for us to see what Jesus values related to faith. Notice in verse 19, Jesus appears to them. He says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So this is in the evening now. The disciples are locked up in a room. Notice it says doors. The doors were shut. They were afraid. That's just the reality of it. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. I mean, if they did this to their Lord, what would, they, what would the, the, those that are the enemies of God do to them? They were afraid. We would be afraid. I'd be locking everything you could, I could find. I mean, we're, I think we're pretty safe to say that by nature we're pretty fearful, right? Especially when we have a lot at stake related to our lives and so forth. But these were probably the inner and outer doors of, of where they were meeting and, and uh, were directly told their motivation for fear of the Jews. And, and so they knew that, that door could, those doors could be knocked on at any moment and they could command them to come out and they could be dragged off to prison and crucified themselves potentially. There was a very real threat. That's why they ran. That's why they took off at the Garden of Gethsemane there. They took off there because they knew that that was a very real threat to them. Obviously, we see Jesus come in and say, peace be with you. We see him not be limited to locked doors or closed doors. He just appears to them. And, and so they were not very peaceful, as I said. They were afraid, and he knew that they needed peace, and they needed reassurance. He doesn't want them to be afraid any longer. And so he manifests himself to them. Verse 20. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The Lord knew this would calm their fears, to verify that it was truly him, and he was more powerful than what those scars could produce in a typical human body. So he was glad to, to show them. And, and then he sa- it says in the passage there that they were glad when they saw the Lord. Isn't that one of the biggest understatements <laughs> in the New Testament? Of course they were glad. They were thrilled. They were, ec- they were ecstatic. They were, were completely um, rejoicing and just so thankful that the Lord Jesus appeared to them. And then notice in verses 21 and 22, Jesus commissions them and gives them the Holy Spirit. He says, it says in verse 21, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So we went over this a week or two ago when we talked about, I think it was last week, we talked about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And this is when the disciples were regenerated, when they had the Spirit come inside of them, putting their faith in Christ, um, or showing that faith in Christ, he breathed in them, and that's when he made their dead spirit alive. When a person, before they come to know Christ, they're spiritually dead. Their spirit is inoperable in the sense that that connection with God that God died on the cross for was, was not, is not realized yet. You don't have that personal relationship with God. You may believe in him. You may, all those things. But that doesn't mean that you have a personal relationship with them because you have, to have, you have to have your spirit made alive. You have to repent of your sins. You have to trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, placing your faith in him. Then he comes in and makes your dead spirit alive and you're, you're regenerated. And that's what happened there with them. They received the spirit. And when he says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. We have authority to say when people are forgiven or not. Because we're saying when your life lines up with what God says is required to have your sins forgiven, your sins are forgiven. We have the authority to say that. And because we're the ones carrying that message. So that's the authority that they and, and, and the same with us, what we have as well. So you see the Lord's heart here. He's in a hurry to reach the, the, the lost. He's already thinking about sending them out. He's already seeing or saying or talking to them about reaching people and helping them and so forth. And so he wants that to happen in, in a hurry. Now notice in verse 24, he tells us that Thomas was not present when Jesus appeared to them. And I don't believe this was an accident. I think Jesus knew exactly who was in that room when he appeared to them. And there was a lesson in that. So here he appears to them. Thomas isn't there. And, and, and I believe he wants to teach Thomas and the disciples and us a valuable lesson. It's okay to want evidence. It's totally fine. God's totally fine with us wanting evidence. We just have to look at, for the right kind of evidence. The Lord Jesus knew Thomas very well. He knew that he was wired a certain way. He knows all of us. And some of us need a little bit more help than others. And God is venerating or showing that the greatest way that we can trust God is to have faith in him, and even when we don't see. And that's going to be one of the lessons there that we um, are going to see at the end. Look at verse 25. He says, The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands... 
in his hands, rather, the print of the nails and put my finger in, into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas is a seeing is believing kind of guy. Now today, when skeptics talk to us, they say, well, if Jesus were right here in front of me and did miracles and so forth, I would believe. And I always argue with them. I say, no, not necessarily. There were people in the Lord Jesus' day that were right in front of him that saw these miracles and still didn't believe. It's not a matter of what you see with your physical senses. It's a matter of what you recognize as biblical and what God has said ahead of time related to prophecies and what's true and how he fulfills those messianic prophecies. I don't have to see to know that. And, and our senses can be deceiving. I mean, if you've ever seen a magic show or whatever, you're like, no, come on, I'm positive that I saw this, but this wasn't the case. You remember with the magicians in Egypt, they could duplicate to a point the miracles there that God was doing, but they weren't legitimate, but people could see them. So it's not just what we see physically. There's something way more trustworthy than that. Now, this interaction with the other disciples and Thomas, to me, is a little bit entertaining here. Look at verse 25 when it says, The other disciples therefore said to him, that word said is a verb that's in a tense that demonstrates continuous action. So they kept on saying to him, they kept on repeating themselves to him, saying, We have seen the Lord. Almost like a neener neener. I mean, that's, I don't know, they were above that or not. I don't, I'm sure they weren't. They were a little bit more merciful than just, you know, rubbing it in. But they're trying to convince him. That's what it is. You're, you're, okay, Thomas, quit being a doubting Thomas. You know, they were the first ones that probably said that. Quit being a doubting Thomas. Believe. We've seen him. We've seen him with our eyes. We've, we've experienced this. And it's, nope, not unless I personally see that. Not unless I put my hands in the print of the nails and put my fingers in the print of the nails and so forth and put my hand in this side. I will not believe. Just the kind of guy that he was. Maybe you're here today and you're like that as well. I need evidence. I can't have blind faith. You're, first of all, not understanding that God hasn't called Christians or people to have blind faith. He knows that we need to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We need to love him with our mind. He knows that he's made us a certain way. We need to see evidence. That's okay. But we have to be asking for the right evidence, the correct evidence. Because seeing with our eyes and, 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 and our ears and hearing with our ears and all of that, it, it's not the ultimate test. Because we, our senses can lie to us. We can be deceived and so forth. There's something way more uh, sure than that. Now, I notice and I, I, I appreciate Jesus' extremely gracious response to him. Uh, look at verses 26 and 27. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, first of all, in his, re his resurrected body, his glorified body, still retain those scars. And he didn't have to do that, but he chose to do it, and he has many purposes for it. But those marks will always mark that sacrifice. I believe we will see those marks ourselves someday in person. 
And I believe if we wanted to feel them or whatever, he'd let us feel them. He, he is, has retained those scars, even in his glorified body. But I just, it, it just arrests my heart of how gracious he is being with Thomas. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, how dare you? He doesn't, none of those things. He's gracious with them. I see a kind of a sense of humor there also because he waits eight days. <laughs> you sh- I mean, to me, they would have got, they, I'm sure they gathered all together in those eight days before that eighth day there. They, and he could have appeared. He's waiting eight days there, having him think about it and wonder and so forth. And I'm sure that his other disciples kept telling him over and over again, we saw those, we saw it. Every, you know, you missed it. Why weren't you here? I don't know where he was. Could have been somewhere, had a very good reason for being gone. He could have had a not very good reason while he was there. Either way, you know that he wished that he could have been there to verify and so forth. So Jesus came again. The doors were shut. Again, he doesn't need anyone to open the door for him. He can just appear. So he appears and he says, peace be with you. And he tells Thomas to inspect his wounds just like Thomas had said that he wanted to do eight days earlier how did jesus know that how did the lord jesus knew that he said that because he's listening he's listening all the time he hears everything that we say and he says don't be unbelieving but believe again what an absolute amazing expression of grace he didn't have to do that god is gracious with our doubts you ever feel guilty for doubting something about god and his word and you feel guilty he knows that we have doubts at times. And he's gracious with those doubts. He doesn't want us to doubt him. He wants us to have faith in him. But when we do, he's always gracious. And that could be very comforting for us. I know it is for me. Now notice Thomas, uh, his appropriate response to this grace in verse 28. He says, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And one thing we have to note here is that Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas. He doesn't tell him, hey, way, way, way easy now, buckaroo. You know, you're calling me Lord and God. I'm just a good moral teacher. I'm just one of the many religious gurus in this world. Easy now. He doesn't do that. He accepts that worship. You know, and, and that's important for us to see. My Lord and my God. Literally, the Lord of me and the God of me. He just receives Thomas's conclusion and worships and, and that Jesus is Lord and he is God. And that's, that's who he is. Maybe you're here today and you've never heard that. He's both the Son of God and God the Son at the same time. He referred to himself as the Son of Man many times. Because he's the mess, and that was a reference from Daniel. And, and, and the Son of Man is a messianic term. But you look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it refers to the Son being called Mighty God. He is God in human flesh. And at one point he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. And he said, for which of these works do you stone me? And, and they, they said, you're claiming to be God. They got the message. And, and he was claiming to be divine you can't read the gospel of john i had one person tell me one time this guy i was sharing my faith with at a car lot and he was saying there's no place in the new testament where jesus claimed to be god it doesn't exist and he starts trying to quote the book of john of all places to try to support him like 
Have you read the book of John? I mean, it says that throughout the whole book. He goes, just show me one verse, man. One verse where he claimed to be God. And I showed him. He's like, oh, well, we can't trust the manuscripts. It's been copied over and over. I'm like, well, then why'd you quote it? You know, I mean, you, you can't select what you believe and pick and choose out of the Bible. and believe, You know, it's, there's so much evidence that the New Testament was written by those that claimed to write it. One guy just told me a couple weeks ago, oh, it was written 300 years after the time of Christ. I'm like, well, that's interesting because it doesn't mention anything about the temple being destroyed, which is kind of in, uh, in, important related to the Jews. And... The, I mean, there's so much history behind that. There's so much evidence behind that it was written and when it was written. And also, another evidence is, as I mentioned, you don't die for something that you know to be a lie. They were witnesses to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And if, if, if they knew whether or not he rose from the dead or not. And if he didn't rise from the dead, why would they lie about it and give their lives up for that when they didn't get money or fame or anything else? The fact that they sealed their... The, the, the truth of the resurrection in their own blood demonstrates that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if he didn't raise from the dead and they knew it, then why should I give my life for a lie when I'm not getting anything in return? That's powerful evidence. There's so much evidence related to Jesus' resurrection and the word of God being what it is and being true. Now look at verse 29. Jesus reveals who's really blessed. <laughs> he says, Jesus said to him, Thomas... Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He knows, the Lord Jesus does, that John would write all of this down at one point, inspired by the Spirit. And he didn't want the people that would come after the disciples to think that their faith was, was inferior because they couldn't verify with their eyes and with their hands and so forth. And he's, so he's saying that we, and we're, we all qualify here. We have not seen his body, his resurrected body, and, and, but yet we believe. And we are just as blessed as anyone else that did see him. Again, our senses can fool us. And in Luke 24, the Lord Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him. He was kind of... He, he restrained their eyes from recognizing. And they're walking along this road, and he tells, they tell him that the recent events just happened related to Jesus of Nazareth, and they tell him about the women who claimed to have saw him alive or that the, the tomb was empty, and they told Jesus their hope that this Jesus was going to redeem Israel, that they would receive a political leader that would take them out of the control of Rome. And it's interesting what Jesus said when he rebuked them for not believing he didn't rebuke them for not believing the women or anything else related to their senses. He rebuked them for not believing God's word. And this is what he said to them. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He rebuked them for not believing the word of God. And think about Thomas. Think about what he had related to the word of God at this point. He had so many messianic prophecies. He had Isaiah 53 and Micah 5.2. He had Psalm 22. And, and most of all, he had scriptures that predicted the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in, in Psalm 16, verse 10, which says this, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, 
nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Talking about corrupting in a tomb. That was written, Psalm 16, verse 10, was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. David prophesied that the Messiah would not see corruption. Thomas did not have to, if he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, he did not need to verify anything with his eyes or his hands or his senses at all. He should have known from the word of God that God promised that, he would, that the Messiah would be raised from the dead and his body would not see corruption. He didn't need to see any physical body as a result of that. He didn't. And Jesus was gracious and he did show him and so forth, but the, he did not need that. He didn't require that. God painted a very vivid, prophetic portrait in advance of the Messiah in the Old Testament so that when Jesus came, we wouldn't miss him. So many prophecies, dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies that only he fulfilled. And there's so many that haven't been fulfilled yet related to his second coming. That's what he expects from you related to what you have uh, need of related to belief is his word there is evidence that his word is true that's fine looking at all of that but if you look at his word in and of itself and you see the power of it the majesty of it the how just how perfectly it was revealed and all the different authors over different continents over big time periods that don't contradict one another and in total complete unity with each other that's evidence enough for you Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies. But maybe you're here and you're a believer, but you're a doubting Thomas kind of in in other ways, in the sense of something that has happened to you that God has allowed, and you're having a hard time having faith in him right now. You're having a hard time trusting him. You know Jesus rose from the dead. I just want to encourage you. If you know that Jesus rose from the dead, what do you know? You know that he's powerful. You know that he's loving. If you know, if you know that he died for you on the cross and he was buried and he rose again the third day, he rose physically, he had that victory on your behalf, then he has your best interest in mind. And yes, he does allow certain things, very hurtful things to happen in our lives. We live in a fallen world. This is a cursed creation. He's going to redeem everything. He's going to renew everything. It's all going to be made right at one point. We just read going through Revelation. One day he's going to wipe away every tear. But what you're going through now is a part of God's overall plan related to your life. Even things that people mean for evil in your life. He can take those things and make them... uh, be used in in your life for his purposes to bring you closer to christ to have you learn lessons to have you go through things so that someday when you're in someone else's life who's going through the same things you can testify and say i know god's faithful i've been through the exact same thing that you've been through and god saw me through it and he's going to see you through it as well sometimes he allows us to go through things just for that reason alone or just for our kids to see us go through things and learn that, that uh, he's faithful in the context of, her, of being hurt and so forth. But just like Thomas, what you need is not something related to your senses. You, what you need is, is God's word. You need to trust God's word. God's word is enough for you to make it through this situation that you're going through. 
It's enough, just as much as it was enough for Thomas related to not having to see or feel or experience the Lord Jesus' resurrection. It's the same thing. God's word is enough. And, and he wants you to trust him at his word. Possibly some of you have been holding back related to following him. And he doesn't apologize for asking you to follow him. He didn't make arrangements with the, with the disciples and say, okay, I want you to follow me, but let me explain to you everywhere that we're going to go, what we're going to experience, how long we're going to be there. He doesn't do any of that. He calls him and says, you follow me. And what we don't understand sometimes is the implications of that decision one way or the other. We don't understand how it affects other people, our children, our family members, our friends, people that are watching our lives and coming to a conclusion about God based on our faithfulness to him. And there's nothing that we have to be afraid of. We can trust him because of the revelation of his word that he's given to us. We can trust that he's making the right decisions in our lives when we surrender those lives to him. Sometimes people say to me, they'll say, well, I know I should surrender my life to Christ. I know I should give him everything, but I feel like if I do that, I'm going to miss out on some things. That's insanity for any of us to think that. If we look at the cross, we look at the resurrection, we look at what he's freely offered to us and the life that he has planned for us, what is it, what is it that we could possibly miss out on? What is it that he's holding back? Wasn't that the original lie in the Garden of Eden? That God was holding out something that they needed, that they, that they should have, and they believed that, you know, I'm going to just, I'm, I mean, Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was deceived. Adam was just stupid. I mean, honestly, he was. Obeying his wife instead of obeying God. We shouldn't obey anybody apart from obeying God, obviously, first. We need to obey God. But they felt like they were missing out on something that they truly needed, that God was holding out. And what, what did the enemy do? He cast doubt on God's word. That was all that they needed. Just like Thomas, just like you going through what you're going through, all we need is to believe God's word and his word will be proven true. It's true anyway. But as we obey it, our lives will prove that it's true. And people will see it. So I just want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're a doubting Thomas, you believe that the resurrection of Christ happened, but you're having a hard time believing him and trusting him in your current circumstance, you need to honor him with your faith by believing what his word says and letting him show himself faithful on your behalf all the way through this situation to the end. He knows how to get our attention. He's he's not trying to hurt you. He's a loving father. Maybe you've made mistakes. Maybe you're... You know, part of your, your decision-making has contributed to the situation that, that you're in. Look how patient he was with Thomas. Thomas was being a certain way, and he was patient with him. God will be patient with you as well. He'll, he loves you. He makes up for our mistakes. He, he redeems us. He takes the things that we do that were stupid, and he changes things, and, and he gives us second chances and third chances and fourth and fifth and just go on and on and on. There's no limit to how much he'll give us chance after chance after chance. He's gracious. We can put our faith in him. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, what does that mean? Does it, do I become a Christian by being a good person, going to church, being religious? The Bible doesn't teach that any of those things get us into heaven. The Bible teaches that Jesus said it in John chapter 3, verse 3. He said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't become born again by believing in God. 
by being religious, by going to church, by being an American. There's all kinds of things that people think qualify them to be a Christian. And the polls say that 80% of this country is, is, are Christians. Aren't you enjoying that? Don't you love living in a Christian nation where 80% of us are Christians and we're loving one another, you know, and we're, we're serving one another? Isn't that a great land to live in? It's a lie because people think that being a Christian is something other than what Scripture says. Scripture says that being, being a Christian is having a spiritual birth at a moment in time when you put your faith faith. Uh, in the cross and what he did for you to pay your way to heaven that you can't earn it you could never be a good enough person to earn your way to heaven because the standard is perfection we've all fallen short of that perfection his definition of a sinner is someone that's been less than perfect and i love sharing with unbelievers and they think they got they got me when they say well then everyone's a sinner then gotcha i'm like you're right that's what the bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god you're right. We're all sinners. You too. That's right. I'm a sinner too. I'm glad you're seeing it my way. It's the truth. We're all, we've all fallen short. Even after you become a Christian, you sin. You're like, yeah, that's right. It is true. But there comes a point in time where I make a U-turn in the road of life. Where I recognize that the going my direction is not God's will for my life. That He wants to forgive me of my sins. He didn't, he didn't die on the cross so that I could believe in him and then just live my life how I've always lived he has a better plan and a higher calling for me than that so in a moment time I need to recognize and admit to God that I'm a sinner and I need to trust and put my faith in that his death his burial the resurrection of Christ put my faith in that alone to pay my way to heaven and ask for it by faith and when I do that he gives me the free gift of eternal life it's a gift you can't earn a gift if I want to give you my watch and I want to present it to you as a gift, and then you gave me money for it, it would cease to be a gift. And it probably could offend me. That's what we do with God. We say, you know what? Salvation is a gift, but I want to give you this. I want to give you religious works. I want to give you all these things. That's, that's an offense to him. There's no way that you would go into a time machine, if you could, and go back in time and see Jesus on the cross and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, but this isn't good enough. Because 2,000 years from now, I'm going to have to do all these religious works. No, he died on that cross and said, it is finished. He didn't say to be continued. That's what he said. It's a free gift. It has to be either a gift or we don't get it at all. There's no middle ground. So if that's you today, I'm going to give you an opportunity in a minute to ask for prayer. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer to receive him as your Savior. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your great invitation to come to you. I pray for those that are struggling to trust you, that believe in you. Help their faith, God. I pray that you'd open up your word to them. Show them in your word that that's enough, that you've given them the answer in your word already. And I pray that you just encourage them, that you haven't forgotten them, that you love them, And you want to use everything in their lives to bring them closer to you and to bring them into maturity. And I pray for those now, Lord, that don't know you. And I want to ask those of you that are here, you you know that you need Christ. You know that you're a sinner and you haven't received Christ, never given your life to him and you want to do that now. And whether you 
are a part of this church or another church, that's none of our business. God may bring you to an entirely different church. That's not why we're giving you this invitation right now. But if you're here today and you know that you need that forgiveness and you want to surrender your life to Christ, I want you to raise your hand right now. And while we're all praying, raise your hand. Let me see it. I'm going to pray for you. If anyone here just want to give an invitation. Anybody here? Just raise your hand. Be glad to pray for you. Okay? There's one. Anyone else? Jesus never begged anybody. He just gave the invitation. He never begged anyone to follow him. So if you're here today, never received Christ, you want to have that forgiveness, you want to surrender your life to God, just go ahead and raise your hand. I'll give you one more moment. Okay, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Just repeat after me. There's no uh, magic words, uh, but you're agreeing with what this prayer is, and God's looking at your heart. And just be sincere to him. And again, no magic words, but just repeat after me. Father, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask that you give me the free gift of eternal life. I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins, that you were buried, and you rose again the third day. I surrender my life to you. Make me into the person you want me to be. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for our brethren. I pray, Lord, that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would manifest yourself to him. I pray, Father, that he would trust you with his life, that you know what's best for his life. I pray that you would bring encouragement to his heart. I pray that you would help us to know how we can serve him. And I pray that you would make his life into a beautiful testimony of your grace. Thank you for saving him today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.